Morning, church. Beautiful day that the Lord has made. We rejoice and glad in it. That was Dr. Sandy Richter. Sandy is a very good friend of mine. She's a friend of Union Chapel. She's been here to preach for us a few years ago. She is a world-class Old Testament scholar. I don't know if you were actually listening to her narrative there, but she is uh, making a compelling argument for the importance of Christian people to understand the Old Testament. And we're going to start a new series in our growing, growing, uh, growing you, it's growing somebody, <laughs> growing you, I knew it was somebody I knew, growing you series um, in a couple of weeks. It's a 12-week series on the Old Testament. Dr. Richter will be teaching via video in the sanctuary at 10 o'clock this hour and 11.15. So uh, could I urge you to take advantage of that? It's going to be a very, very uh, inspiring and probably life-changing experience to listen to Dr. Richter teach on the Old Testament. And as I say, she's world-class. She is, she's exceptional. And so I hope that you'll take advantage of that. Uh, if I weren't busy at 10 and 11.15, that's where I would be, checking out the Epic of Eden is the title of the series, so I hope that you'll check it out. It's free of charge. Just show up and have your Bible and be ready to learn some important things. We continue our series today on the subject of life. I want to talk about a very pervasive issue that virtually all of us deal with in life, and it's the issue of rejection. Rejection. And I've chosen as our text today from Ephesians chapter 1. This is uh, the Apostle Paul writing the church at Ephesus. And Ephesians chapter 1 is a magnificent expression of human literature. Uh, you don't have to be a Christian to appreciate this lofty and exalted language of Ephesians 1. And it's so rich with truth. And the whole purpose, the whole point of Ephesians 1 is to remind us who we are in relationship with God. What God has given for us. Uh, the understanding of who we are as people in relationship with God. And it's very, very powerful. So I hope it will be a blessing and encouragement to you. If you have your Bibles, then turn to Ephesians 1. We'll project these words. Our custom is to ask you to stand as you're able to hear God's Word. Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. 
And may God inspire us today through his word. You may be seated. Thank you so much. A couple of guys, before they became Christians, went out to a restaurant, had a bar associated with it. Their names were John and Brooks. A true story. Brooks had his girlfriend with him. And as they sat down, John decided to make a pass at Brooks' girlfriend. He bent down next to her and tried to get her, persuade her to go home with him. And Brooks looked at his friend John and said, don't. And John paid him no mind and he bent down again. And this time he asked Brooks' girlfriend if she would kiss him. And Brooks again looked at his friend John and I said, don't. Once again, this time, John was not going to be dissuaded, and so he bent down and tried to kiss Brooks' girlfriend, at which Brooks stood up and doubled up his fist and punched John in the side of the head and literally knocked him through a plate glass window out into the sidewalk outside. Brooks and his girlfriend got in the car and left before the police and paramedics arrived. Another patron in the restaurant went over to John and was helping him up, and of course, he was a mess. And the man said to John, didn't you hear him say, don't? And John said, yeah, I heard him. I just underestimated the depth of their relationship. Now, I would say that was an understatement. Apparently, he did underestimate the depth of the relationship. And here's what I want to make of this. That virtually everyone in the world, the world, the church, those of us who know Jesus... The devil himself, listen to me, have totally, all of us together, have totally underestimated the depth of the love of God for us. We have totally underestimated, we have totally undervalued, we have totally underesteemed the love of God that he has for us. God loves us and he accepts us. Now, you'll remember an important occasion in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, when Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, he's on the road to Damascus, and he was struck down by the power of God and temporarily blinded. And then this voice, disembodied voice, comes out of nowhere and speaks to Saul of Tarsus, and it's the Lord. And the Lord says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Saul was on his way to Damascus to persecute some more Christians, and Jesus reveals himself to Saul of Tarsus on the way to Damascus and says, why are you persecuting me? So the inference is clear here. Jesus said, when you mess with my people, you mess with me. When you, when, when you deal a blow to my folks, you are dealing a blow to me. When you offend my people, you are offending me. And Jesus is making clear in this passage that he has gone all in with us. He has gone all the way in with us, toward us, on our behalf. He is inclined toward us. He loves us and accepts us. Can I remind you that there is hardly an emotional difficulty with which the broad range of people deal so consistently as that of rejection. You have been rejected from time to time, point to point in your life. For some of you, and I'm talking to people in this room right now, for some of you, the rejection has been profound. It was abuse. It was abandonment. It was harm done to you. 
at some stage in your life. For some of you, it was when you were very young. But as life has unfolded, rejection has come to each of us in one way or another. When I was nine years old, I lived in a very small town, grew up in Boswell, Indiana. It was about 1,000 people. And so the number of guys that were available to play with, you know, that was a small number. And most of the guys in my immediate neighborhood in town were older than me, two or three years older than me. And so I was always kind of the runt in the neighborhood growing up. And, and my parents uh, really think that whatever competitive advantage that I gained in life came because of uh, growing up around people bigger and older than me and worked me over when I was a kid. And it forced me to be a little tougher than usual. And one of my friends was named Larry Dalton, and Larry was two years older than me, and his family owned a big barn on their property. They weren't farmers, but they had this big wooden barn. It was one of these old-timey barns, just really, really big. It's, it's long gone now, but I'm sure that if I saw it today, it wouldn't be quite as big as I remember it. But it was big enough that the Daltons had actually put a full-court basketball uh, in the hayloft of this, of this barn actually hung two goals 10 feet high in the top of this hay mound, and we could run full court up there as kids. And so weather never stopped us from playing hoops uh, in our neighborhood. And one, one day they decided they were going to have a big three-on-three tournament in the barn on a Saturday, and I was so excited. I, I remember laying awake all night Friday just thinking about the, the basketball tournament. And I got up, and I ate breakfast, and I got my mom's permission, and I headed over to the Dalton barn, and I had my basketball under my arm, and I climbed up into the hay mound, and there was a bunch of kids there from all over town, and we were choosing up three-on-three teams. And one of the older kids, 12, 13 years old, he came over to me, and he said, how old are you? I said, I'm nine. And someone had decided that they were going to cut off the age limit to 10 that day because they didn't want any squirts playing in the, you know, getting in the way. And he said, well, you're not old enough to play. I said, no, well, I, I know, but, I, but I, I, I'll, be, I'll be fine. I'll, I'll fit right in. He said, no, you're only nine. You're, you're too young. And he took my ball, and there was a big door, you know, right on the gable end of that hay mound where they used to inload the hay back in the day. And he just opened that, that door, swung it open, and took my ball and just threw it out the window. Well, I climbed down out of the hay mound, out, retrieved my ball, went back up the ladder back into the hay mound, <laughs> And he said, what are you doing here? And I said, look, please, please let me play. I was just so eager to play. And this time he took my ball and he walked over to that window and he punted my ball out the window and sent it about halfway home. I was devastated. I went down the ladder, picked up my ball. I went home in tears. I was so disappointed. That was 53 years ago. Now, let me ask you a question. Why do you think I remember that so poignantly? Why are all those details just very fresh in my mind? You know why. Because rejection hurts. It hurts. People in this room are now replaying moments in your life. And you know it hurts. And for some folks, the wound is much more grievous than for others, but we all suffer. I was asked to preach a funeral many, many years ago of a man I had not met. They were associated, and I agreed to preach the funeral. I went to the funeral home during the visitation hours. This man was um, 
there with his family. He was an open casket visitation hours, and I was greeting the family and getting to know the friends and preparing. And a young man walked into to the funeral home. He had a little girl in his arm, about three years old, and a little boy, about four or five, uh, holding his hand as they walked right up to the casket. And I was close enough to overhear what this young father said to these children. They were all three looking into the casket, and I heard this young man say, well, kids, that's your grandfather. And I just wanted you to see him at least one time. And I knew that this part of the story wasn't fitting in with the other parts I had learned about this family. And so I walked over, introduced myself, and then I simply asked this young man, tell me, uh, how are you connected with the family? And he said, well, I'm his son. I didn't know he had a son. This was news to me. And I said, oh, really? And he, said, he told me this story. He said, when I was two years old, my mother died. And my father remarried very quickly, the woman who's still his wife. And after just a little while, she told my dad that she wasn't willing to raise me. And so he would have to decide whether to keep her or to keep me. And he said, so I understand that at two years old, he threw me in the car and drove me to the local orphanage and signed over all his rights to me and left me in the orphanage. And so I was raised in an orphanage. And I stayed here in the area. And he said, the only reason that I knew my dad died is I saw his obituary in the newspaper. And this is the first time I've seen him in all these years. And I thought it would be an important thing for my children to at least see him one time. Let me give you three ideas when it comes to rejection. I want to talk about rejection just a little bit, nuance it a little bit so you can identify with the rejection that's true in your life. And then at the end today, I want to give you, I want to give you the cure for the rejection wound in your life. I have the cure. I've got good news. And I'm going to help some people today if you'll listen, if you'll stay with me. Now, on your outline, you'll see the first point is this. No matter where you are on the rejection continuum, and you're somewhere on the continuum, everyone is, make sure that the rejection that you experience from time to time is real. Make sure it's real. Here's what I mean. You need to separate out the real and the imagined rejection. So in other words, if I'm not chosen, for example, for a particular opportunity to play on the team or perform in the play or serve on the committee, that isn't necessarily a rejection of me personally. It's just a situational. It's circumstantial. Uh, people, people aren't picked all the time for various things. It doesn't mean that it's personal rejection of you as a person. If I project into a moment that really isn't rejection, then I am heaping on myself pain and suffering that really isn't real. And so you have to differentiate between what's actually a rejection of your personhood and just stuff that happens in life. Some of you know that I played Division I college basketball, and I also played a year of Division I college baseball. And when I graduated, I just want to tell you, every year since then, that was just after the Civil War, <laughs> there has been a, a, 
National Basketball Association draft, an NBA draft, and a Major League Baseball draft every year since I graduated from college. And you know, they've, they've never called me. Not once. Not once. Can you believe that? I mean, there were years when the Chicago Cubs were playing. I knew that I could pitch better than their, some guys on their pitching staff. I knew I could. I was confident of that. They didn't call me. They didn't call. Now, look, I can take that one of two ways, right? I can either take that personally, that they just don't like me, they reject me, or I can put that into the category, you know, that's just circumstantial. So lower my expectation on that one. That, that wasn't aimed at me to hurt me. But if I pick up that offense, I'm going to pick it up wrongly and assume wounds that aren't, aren't mine. Here's what else I've discovered about folks who have a, a, a deeper wound of rejection in their life. There's a tendency sometimes because of the need for acceptance and friendship and acknowledgement from certain folks who have a deep, deeper level of this wound that they will try to impose themselves in other people's lives in order to find that, the acceptance they need. Now, listen, if you're a person who is at a deeper level of woundedness in this category, you don't have the right to expect that anyone is going to absorb your life into their life, regardless of what your needs are. Some people purchase rejection for themselves when they unrealistically expect from others counsel or care or intimacy or advocacy. Because you can become so needy for acceptance and the love you need, you'll just reach for people who look like they have some of that available and they'll tr they'll try, you try to insinuate yourself into someone else's life. It's not a good idea. It's not a good idea. And if you're a person that people tend to gravitate to for that kind of support, that kind of acceptance, that kind of encouragement, I'm that kind of a person. My wife is that kind of a person. You can understand. I have people who call me just to be rejected. If, if Greg would Pastor Greg would just be my friend, if he would love me and accept me and just hang out with me a little bit, then I would feel better about myself. And, and it's, it's not good because I'm a person who actually knows how to say no. I know how to say stop. I know how to put boundaries up because I can't be everybody's buddy. And so people call me just to get rejected, and they know they're going to get rejected. This is part of the psychology of it. This is how they, people sabotage themselves out of this wound, that they'll actually reach for relationships that they know aren't realistic. And because they have perceived themselves as a person deserving of rejection, they actually set themselves up to get more rejection. The Bible teaches it this way. The Bible says that whatever a person fears will actually be experienced. What a man fears shall come upon him. So what happens to all of us, that what, whatever our greatest fear is, whatever that thing is, it will chase you. It will chase you. And sometimes it will catch you. And so you have to be careful about that. Here's, a, here's, another, here's another symptom of this rejection and the wound that it can, that it can cause. If I'm a person who's been wounded and I live with a worldview of seeing myself as a person rejected, I will actually notice that wound in other people. Just like people with whatever your strengths are, you'll notice similar strengths that you have in other people who have that strength. 
And you hear the, the phrase, like attracts like, and people tend to congregate in groups where there's familiarity and shared experience. And so this is what human beings do. And so what can happen to you if, if you're inclined to see yourself as a person who's going to be rejected is you will identify people who have a similar kind of profile. And if that person that you know or care about or have befriended, or maybe it's a family member, if they are offended or they are rejected by someone else, your inclination is to pick up their offense. So now there's two of you who's all wounded and rejected. I can't believe what they did to you. I can't believe what they said to you. I can't believe that happened to you. And you take all kinds of offense for the other person. Listen, don't you have enough offense of your own? Want to pick up somebody else's offense? It's none of your business to carry someone else's offense. So now you formed a little group. Now there's two of you, a little pitiful group. And then you'll find a third and a fourth, and you'll congregate, and you'll have, you'll have special meetings just to sit around and tell each other how pitiful you are. Can't believe what happened to you. It's not healthy. It's not good. God wants you to be free from, from the wounds of rejection. God wants you to be free from a worldview, an attitude that says, I'm never going to make it. I'm never going to be accepted. I'm never going to be fully loved. Once you're free from that, he wants you to have victory over that. Mm -hmm. These are things that happen. So that leads me to the second point I want to make, and that is don't be trapped into performing in order to gain acceptance. And so here's, here's how this plays out in a, in a dysfunctional way, in a harmful way. If, if, if I'm a person who doesn't have the acceptance that I need in my life, then I will go chasing after acceptance by the way I behave and accommodate the wishes and demands of other people in my life. So what can happen is I can run, if I'm an adult person and I suffer from a lack of acceptance and I, don't, I haven't absorbed God's, God's acceptance into my heart, then what happens to me is I'll begin to chase relationships that actually hurt me rather than help me. And if the next relationship I'm in, the person demands this of me, then I will do those things in order to gain the acceptance, even sinful things, so that I can be included. We have an entire generation of young people who are being raised in a culture now that has developed as a high, high value for the millennials of this emergent generation right now, these kids we're raising, the millennials have as a value and maybe at the very top of the value list for these kids the need to be included in community. So if the highest value, the highest value isn't to honor God and to, to live right and, to, and pursue holiness and to, and to honor God with my life, that's not the highest value. The highest value is to be included in community. So if in order to be included in community, I have to do sinful acts and behave in sinful ways, I'm willing to do that because the worst possible thing that can happen to me isn't to displease God or to do something sinful. The worst thing for me is to be excluded from the group. So I will go to extremes, even sinful ex extremes, in order to be accepted in the group. Now listen to me, here's a, here's a principle of life that, that, that I hope you'll hear it, and it's absolutely true every time, and it's this, whatever you compromise to gain, you can never keep. 
whatever you compromise in virtue and value and practice in order to gain, in order to have, you can never keep. One of the, one of the classic symptoms of this historically has been the person, men and women do this, and this is especially true in women's lives, and of course they have to have men's participation, but women who are broken in this way and, and, and in need of love and acceptance will go from one devastating relation, destructive relationship with men after another, one after another after another. You know, it's looking for love in all the wrong places. And it happens because, because people, men and women do this, are willing to do even sinful things if it means I can be accepted and loved. But remember the principle. The principle is whatever you compromise to get, you can't keep. You cannot, you cannot keep. It's fool's gold. It's not real. It won't last. It has no value. Now, the flip side of that principle is also true, that whatever you gain in life through virtue and, and through faithfulness, and, and through God-honoring values, whatever you do with that as a foundation, those things that you gain from that kind of life, you can never lose. can never lose. For example, if you're living in a way that leans toward God and you're desiring to become more and more like Christ and your character is being formed in, into the image of Jesus, here's what's true. The, the Christ-like character that you have right now, you're going to have a million years from now because everyone in this room is going to be alive somewhere a million years from now. You are going to be you a million years from now. And so you want to build things that last into your life, not things that can't possibly last. Some of you know that... Um, that J-Lo and A-Rod are an item now. Have you noticed? <laughs> Jennifer Lopez and Alex Rodriguez, they've gotten all kissy-kissy. Have you seen them? Aren't they sweet? Isn't it romantic? J-Lo's been married four times and had God only knows how many other romantic relationships in her life. There's another um, Hollywood actress that most of you will recall, if not her image, but certainly her name, Elizabeth Taylor. Do you remember her? Elizabeth Taylor was married eight times in her life. Elizabeth Taylor, for her entire life, stood in front of the world and basically said, please love me. Please, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And the world said back to her, oh, we love, you. we love your talent. We love your beauty. Oh, beautiful, spectacular. We love you. But Elizabeth Taylor was filled with fears because she didn't know who she was. She didn't know how lovable she really was. She didn't, didn't really know how acceptable she was as a person. And so Elizabeth Taylor had these fears, and one fear was that she would get fat what if I get fat? What if I gain a bunch of weight? What will happen to me then? So what, did she, what happened to her? She got fat. So then she had to go to the fat farm. Some of you aren't old enough to remember this. She went to the fat farm, lost 75 pounds. And after she'd lost 75 pounds, she calls a news conference, and she prettied herself all up. And when she prettied herself up, it was pretty. 
She stood in, as the video began to record and the cameras were flashing and she stood in front of everyone saying, I feel so much better. Thank you for your support. A voice in the crowd at the press conference calls out. You can hear it over the mic. We love you. We love you. And she goes home and she goes, okay, there, I feel, I feel loved. Then she's afraid of something else. She's afraid she might become chemically dependent. She might become an alcoholic. She's really afraid of that. What would happen if, if I become chemically dependent? Will people love me then? And so what happened to her? She gets chemically dependent, becomes an alcoholic. Now she has to go to the rehab center. So she goes to Betty Ford Clinic, and she's there for several months until she gets clean. And so then she prettys herself up again. She gets in front of the cameras. She said, I'm all clean now. I feel so much better. And, and the whole thing was, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And again, someone from the crowd said, we love you. But what were people really saying? We love your talent. We love your beauty. We love your presence. But no one was actually saying and meaning we actually love you as a person. Here's what I want to say to you today. There is a God in heaven. Listen to me. There's a God in heaven who does not care about your looks. He does not care about how beautiful you are or handsome you are. He does not care how much money you have. He doesn't care how popular you are, how, how many favorites you have, how many followers you have on Facebook. He doesn't care anything about that. What God cares about is he cares about you. He cares about you. He accepts you. He loves you just the way you are. He loves your person. He loves you unconditionally and lavishes his love upon you. And I want to say again that all of us have tended to underestimate the massive and the great love of God, the love of God that flows freely, the love of God that never runs out, deep as an ocean, the height, the depth, the length, the breadth of the love of God for us. He loves us and he accepts us. Now here's what I want to say to you. This is the last point I want to make. Absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing will set you free from the tendency to feel rejected as a person. Nothing will set you free. Counseling won't do it. Deliverance prayers won't do it. Special study won't do it. Won't do it. The only thing that can liberate you from the wound of rejection and the ongoing rejection that comes to every one of us in our lives is a personal revelation of the love of God for you. Receive the love he offers you. Receive it by faith. Because once you realize and once you know and assimilate that truth, you want to believe what's true, right? The truth that God loves you, you assimilate that into your life, and it will change the way you go through the world. It will change the way you perceive yourself. It will change the way you do relationships. And so you say, what do you mean that's the only way to get free from this wound? Listen, I know. We had a consultant here with our software program, the Shelby System. It's been our software program here at Union Chapel for over 30 years. And she was a, a technician that came and sat with us for the whole week and coaching up our staff. And, and I sat down with Lisa one afternoon and discovered that Lisa is, a, is the wife of a preacher in, in Texas. Great. Got a little bit of her story and discovered that for many years, her husband was on the staff of a very, very large church in Texas and then in 2009, she and her husband planted a church. 
in Texas, and that's going well for them. And, she, and without any prompting, she said, you know, uh, when we were on the staff of this big church, just one of a number of staff in this huge church, she said when people would come and go fr from the church, she said it really didn't affect us at all. I didn't even notice. You think, well, you know, people come and go all the time. But she said once we planted a church, and that was our ministry, and that was our baby, and that was the culture we were trying to establish, when people leave the church and do so sometimes unexpectedly, she said, boy, that, you know, that can really hurt sometimes. I said, yeah, yeah, it's true. And this is something none of you think about because you haven't been in the role, but just so you know, uh, when, people, when people do leave the church, I take that personally. And you say, well, you shouldn't take it personally. I mean, life happens, stuff happens, people come and go all the time. It's, people are constantly migrating. It's no big deal. It may be no big deal to you, but it's a big deal to me and, and my wife because I take it personally. But you shouldn't take it personally. I said, well, that's too bad, but I, I do. And the reason I take it personally is because it's personal. You pour your life into people. I this has happened to Beth and I now, to me. And you pour your life, you, you pour everything you've got, you give it your best, you, you pour into people's lives, sometimes for 10 years, 20 years like this, and they just turn around and walk away from you. And so I take that personally. Our Shelby system, you know, back to our operating system, actually has recorded all the people who have self-identified with Union Chapel. In other words, these are folks that we didn't assume were part of our church, but these are people who submitted all their information and in our database so we know about them. They self-identified with Union Chapel. Do you know how many people have self-identified with Union Chapel over the last 30 years plus? The number is 53,000. 53,000. Now, I will admit that some of you have much deeper and more grievous rejection wounds than I do. Some bad, bad stuff has happened to you. I, I get it. And I understand that. And I'm sorry. And God is sorry for what's happened to you. But in terms of sheer numbers and sheer volume... Nobody knows more about rejection than me. And please don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to garner some kind of sympathy. That's the last thing I want from you. What I want is for you to recognize that I actually know what I'm talking about. I have incredible authority on this subject. And here's what I know to be true. The only way to live in victory over rejection in your life, and it happens to all of us, the only way to live in victory over that is to understand by a revelation of Almighty God just how much He loves you. And so then we can understand the words that Jesus used. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. If God loves me, who dares hate me? If God is for me, who can be against me? Who can separate me from the love of God? Nothing. So back to Ephesians 1. We've come full circle now. We started with Ephesians 1, and let's end with Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 is God's description of of where we stand and understanding of where we are in relationship to him. And so here's your homework assignment. Every place where you see the, the pronoun us in Ephesians 1, 
insert your own name there. Now here's Joni. She won't mind if I use her name. Here's Joni on the front. Here's what Ephesians 1, verse 3 says, blessed is Joni. Verse 4, Joni is chosen and made holy and blameless. In verse 5, a plan for Joni has been established from the foundation of the world. Verse 5, Joni was adopted as a daughter. Verse 6, Joni was accepted by God. Verse 7, redeemed by God. Verse 8, Joni was was loved and love abounds toward her. Verse 9, Joni has been spoken to by God. Verse 10, Joni has been gathered together with others in the church. Verse 11, has been reserved, has reserved Joni with an inheritance. And verse 11, has sealed Joni with the precious Holy Spirit. All of these promises toward us. Now this is your homework. Every day for the next two weeks, I want you to read Ephesians 1, and every time you see the word us, you just put your name in there. And you'll begin to get a revelation of the love of God for you. Now let's do one more practice as we conclude. As we pray this morning, I want to just take you on a little journey and let you think about this. Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes with me. I want to take you back to the garden the garden tomb on the resurrection morning. Will you go with me? Let's go to the cemetery. It's resurrection day. Imagine it now. You're there. The birds are awakening, beginning to sing their songs. But the last three days, I mean, think about it. The darkness and depression, the fear, the loneliness that seems to have engulfed the world for these three days begins to break. And and the explosive power of God has rolled away the heavy stone from that borrowed tomb where Jesus was was laid. There are angels standing in the cemetery. (laughs) And then the Lord, the risen Messiah, the Christ of God, is up from the grave, and he has in his hands the keys of death and hell and the grave. And he walks forth now into the sunlight. And just at that moment, a lonely woman enters the cemetery She understands rejection. She's been abused. There were men who slept with her as a prostitute who never knew her name and didn't want to know. She has no family. She has a sordid past. And indeed, her future seemed sealed in the grave with Jesus. She's come to the cemetery that morning when no one else would come. You just wonder what mournful, Dark thoughts are in her head. Perhaps she's thinking to herself, he was the only man who ever cared about me and didn't want to use me. He's the only man who ever spoke to me as a real human being. But suddenly she looks. The grave is open. She thinks, what does this mean? There are two men standing right there by the grave. They're robed in white. Why seek ye the living among the dead, they ask makes no sense to her. She doesn't understand. The others who are now entering the, in, entering the cemetery, they run. They flee out. She alone remains. She's alone. She's confused. She's disoriented. And then she hears a voice. Listen to me, friends. Listen. The first, the first word of the resurrected Christ was the name of an ex-prostitute. 
Think about that. Didn't appear at the temple in Jerusalem, utter some great, grand, prophetic, theological truth. This is what he said, the first word of the resurrected Christ. He said, Mary. No matter where you are on the rejection continuum today, could I invite you to turn an ear to the empty tomb and listen? Listen for Jesus because he will call your name. I see you in your brokenness. I see you in your pain and rejection. But in my resurrected glory, I love you. I love you and I accept you. I accept you just the way you are. So Lord, Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive this most important truth. Help us to estimate rightly your love for us and apply it to our hearts. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Stand with us now as we sing.